Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Welcome, everyone. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Stephen Dynan. Stephen is a noted social entrepreneur and visionary political strategist. He's the founder and CEO of the Shift Network, a leading global provider of online transformational courses and trainings. He was previously a senior staffer for both the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, and the Esalen Institute. At IONS, he was the driving force behind the Shift in Action program, and at Esalen, he directed and helped to create the Center for Theory and Research, a think tank for scholars, researchers, and teachers to explore human potential frontiers. He's a graduate of Stanford University and a member of the Transformational Leadership Council and the Evolutionary Leaders Group. Today, we're going to discuss his latest book, Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All. I'm delighted to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Stephen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the warm welcome, Miriam. Well, I so much enjoyed reading your book. There's so much compassion and inclusivity in it that you really feel it was written out in that proverbial field beyond all notions of right and wrong that Rumi describes. Tell me what you're hoping to awaken with this work. Well, on the deepest level, I feel that we have sometimes created a separation between our, our spiritual practices, our personal growth, and our, the evolution of our democracy. And I, I really fundamentally believe that, that in order for us to evolve a more enlightened world, which I think all of us can be aligned with, we have to actually enlighten our society and the, the way that we go about governing ourselves. And so many people who are on a path of spiritual growth and development can be can avoid going into the public sphere because it can feel very toxic, very polarizing. It can feel very, um, very tough, actually, to to get involved in a way that feels like it's healing. So I'm really writing this book both both to mainstream political leaders as well as people who are coming out of a more mainstream perspective, but also people who are on a path of personal growth and development to really see that there is a way to engage the evolution of our democracy and to and to make that part of, of how we show up in the world, but in a way that's more unifying, that's more holistic, that's about f- focusing on solutions, it's about political cross-training where we really start to understand different perspectives in our own, that we see our political engagement as an opportunity to grow still more in our compassion, our empathy, our, our wisdom for how do we, how do we live a, a good life on this planet. And so when the side benefit of that is it also that if without, without it, we're really you know, potentially in a lot of trouble on the planet. And so we have to evolve our political system if we're going to be able to address the various crises we face in time. And I think that we have to do so in a way that's more unifying, that's more respectful, that's ultimately grounded in a kind of sacred reverence for life. Well, I think what we see playing out in our political life is the very opposite of what you describe. It's uh, extreme 
polarization and lack of civility. And we can see how it totally short circuits getting anything done. So what you're trying to build notionally in the book and as a suggestion for um, upcoming leaders is the groundwork for bridging this divide, um, bridging the, the polarity that really um, is totally handicapping uh, the, the progress that we need to make at this time. Now, there's, I was really impressed with your story of how you went from fervent progressive to someone who really has come to appreciate the values associated with conservatives and how imperative it is to bridge this divide. What were some of the insights that you had along the way that mellowed you and brought you to this understanding? Well, I really see it ultimately as an outgrowth of a, a deeper commitment to oneness, to to the spiritual principles that so many of us have uh, have learned. I mean, with Om Times, you are you are speaking to a very spiritual audience, and so, you know, we really at the foundation and root of there's a recognition that we are divine beings and that we live in this divine world and that we are here as stewards of of what's happening as well as taking opportunities to grow and evolve, and so. All of that sounds really good until we then go over to the political sphere, and then we often evoke a whole different side of ourselves, often disgust and hatred. Even the most spiritually oriented of my friends can can get into this, and a lot of anger and animosity. And so I just, at a certain point, recognized that that was just not really serving. And so I decided to take it on as as, as a practice for myself to go beyond my own uh, visceral disgust and and dismay at different political leaders, and really and really reconnect with them as human beings and and see how they they can see the world in a certain way and understand their divine role in a way in the evolution of our planet. Doesn't mean I necessarily always agree with them, and I I think it's important to still be discerning and to take positions and stands based upon what we believe is right. Uh, but to do so in a way where we're, ne- we're not alienating ourselves from the other or the, the, whoever the other represents. So a good example was with, the, with Sarah Palin when she was the 2008 nominee for vice president. She really got under my skin. And I just I found her just like nails on a chalkboard listening to her. So I took it undertook it as a practice to read both of her books. And eventually, out of that whole journey, I've ended up writing a uh, Huffington Post article about about this that was called "Dissolving the Palin Prejudice." And so, in the pro- course of that journey, I I, um, I began to humanize her in different ways and understand her upbringing and her values and choices that she had made that were very hard that actually I respected and ways that she had challenged the uh, the old boys network in Alaska and it basically kind of helped to take some of the edge off what I had been seeing and and really appreciate her as her own unique being. And uh, and so I wrote this article about the uh, the journey and what I could appreciate through the book. And my progressive friends were generally horrified that I had done this, but that I got a lot of fan <laughs> mail from conservatives. And what I learned from that, the, a lot of the conservatives felt seen and respected and honored in a way uh, because they 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 were so identifying with what Sarah represented for them. 
and that they were fans of of that. And so when when progressives were championing, were were denigrating her and attacking her and demeaning her, it t- they took it on as like a personal insult. And so there was a way in which people were feeling more shut down, more more alienated, more dug in, more res- resistant, more negative. Mm-hmm. Then, then actually served, and and that we see that kind of poison in the system paralyzing a lot of forward momentum in our government right now. And so, each time that we go into attack mode and start to diminish uh, a political another political leader, we have to remember that it's not just about that leader; it's all the people who support them, and all those people. You know, do we want to alienate ourselves from a good chunk of the human family? Do we want to really create a schism in 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 our own heart and with others? And and ultimately, I think as as people on a path of growth and development, we have to get to the place of opening our heart to all of humankind. So politics allows us a a pretty intense practice ground because the issues are charged, the debates are charged, the attacks are charged to, to enter into that in a way that's, that's not demonizing people, but really just taking a stand for what the world we want to create and to help evolve the process. So as part of my practice this year with the book, I went to both the uh, Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. At the Republican, I was participating in something called the Purple Tent, which is finding the higher common grounds between red and br- red and blue. So purple equals red plus blue. And it was um, it was really quite, quite illuminating and interesting and, and fascinating. So even while there's a lot of uh, the, on the surface, the, there's more polarization and a kind of violent polarization than ever before. I think we're seeing the, the, the outgrowth of decades of development of more and more um, segmented society where we're more polarized against the other. So I think we can't get to the, like the solutions that really are net required to evolve and to repair our democracy until we until we soften those divides, until we create those bridges. And so I've been interested in creating more bridges and connections with conservatives this year, even as I'm taking a stand for um, for for being a Democrat as well. Well, in a sense, the extreme positions of uh, Donald Trump, I think, are perhaps paving the way for more um, purple to emerge as people are um, pulling away from the the extremism. And I think I think there's you, a truth in that. You, that yeah. The, 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 the opportunity this year is the, is for an upgrade of not just. Um, not just who we elect, but how we elect, and to recognize some of the dysfunctions that are on um, on display this year, and and the and the damage that 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 causes in our population, and some of the the sort of the the violence that does to our our, our people, and and you know the rates of bullying has gone way up on school pay, playgrounds this 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 whole year, and there's there's a way in which it just it leaves people kind of wounded and broken and misunderstood, and and so when we're seeing such an exaggerated um, version of that, and it, it's not just a, it's not just coming from the Republican side. It's also you know been very evident on the Democratic side, and it's been more you know there's been a lot of that intense polarization energy between Bernie supporters and Hillary. When, when, when mm-hmm. there's that level of stridency in the air and lo- level of attack and demonization, it's like you know I, that people Hillary for prison and Donald Trump is you know crazy and you know it's just like there's a, just a, using the, some of the basis insults we have. What it, it, it basically keep it de- degrades our whole public discourse to another level, and we all pay the price because we're not 
creating the real solutions to there's a lot of things we need to do we need to get the money out of politics we need to prevent gerrymandering we need to clean up the whole voting process to make sure that everybody's enfranchised and that there's clarity around the vote we need to we need we there's banking reforms we need to do there's things that we have to do with up leveling the military there's there's a lot of significant things because america is a major force on the world stage. We have 37% of the world's military. We've got 22% of the world's economy. We have, you know, so much of the, uh, so much of the media is shaped here. So when we're dysfunctional, we create dysfunction on a planetary scale. And so the dysfunction in American democracy has a huge impact on the world. Mm. So before the break, we were talking about the uh, extreme positions of both the progressive and the conservative side. Now, you have some fascinating suggestions on an evolutionary change for both the Democratic and the Republican side, although you go more deeply into the Democratic descriptions. Um, how did you come to be part of this I think you would call it a transpartisan movement. Yeah, it's something that's emerged over the la recent um, years and become a stronger force. So just more and more people, particularly people who are on a path of growth and development, recognizing that there is this deeper ground, a unifying ground that that brings us together as citizens and really as as you know as human beings. That is that is far deeper than party loyalty, and that if we get too caught up in party loyalties and positions, that it can actually create tears in the fabric of our of our human connectedness. And so, you know, the transpartisan movement has a lot of different people and wings in in there. There's there's people from like Joan Blades from the who's one of the co-founders of Move On has created living room conversations. There's we just did an American Citizen Summit online that featured many different pioneers. There's people who are looking at media bias and all sides looks at like how the the bias is playing out in different different sides and there's there's a lot of really great initiatives that that basically are focused on how do we create a more conscious way of doing democracy and it doesn't mean a transpartisan doesn't mean you you let go of any identification with a particular orientation you can be a, a transpartisan progressive and a transpartisan republican a transpartisan libertarian transpartisan green it really is about First of all, first of all, committing to a level of discourse that is more growthful and that we learn from each other and that we sometimes the challenge of different political positions is the, the raw material for us to go to the next level. So, you know, the secret sauce of America is to hold the unity and diversity at the same time. And we have such a diverse country with so many different cultural streams and religious streams and ideologies. And, and so when we can hold all of that with sufficient unity then the diversity is healthy and and growthful and helps us go to a next level. But if it breaks down and we de descend into different kinds of uh, warfare with each other, then it really becomes dysfunctional. So I, I'm speaking to how we have to spend more of our time on the reunifying and what brings us together uh, rather than what separates us now because that we've gotten so separated into different camps and we're stratified by class. There's a lot of class warfare. There's, you know, there's the cultural wars around, um, you know, between African Americans and the police culture right now is really strong. There's the, the, the whole schism with the, with Islam is, is also big. So I, th I think it's important for those of us who care about this to, to make demonstrations and outreach about bridging bridging those divides. So one of those divides is around left-right and Democrat-Republican. 
And so for us to to take seriously having deep conversations, having um, healing conversations that, that can be about politics rather than simply just locating their own little ghetto of people who think like us. Uh, same thing applies with um, other divides. So how do we both honor the the difficult job of being a police officer and the requirement to have law and order with the real oppression that African Americans have felt and to do reforms that help to alleviate that and that that's that's important part of our shadow work as a country and the same thing with with the world of Islam it's like how do we create more bridges of understanding with the world of Islam rather than descend into more uh, polarization and, and demonization. And so each time there's been a cycle of escalation of uh, fear around terrorism, I, I often will make micro loans to uh, entre women entrepreneurs in Islamic countries. It's just a little signal of like, hey, we, we got your back. We're, 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 we, you know, there are Americans who care about you and that this is not something we want to inflame. So, so it's very easy and often more provocative to pour more, uh, you know, fan the flames of various divides, and it gets a lot of att media attention. But it ultimately leaves us uh, worse off, and 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 it really also betrays the, the need for real solutions that go beyond partisan divides. When we can when we can cross those divides, we we actually create better solutions. As an example. Mm -hmm. uh, Van Jones was is working. He's a pro prominent progressive activist and, and has built some bridges. Is now working on criminal justice reform with Newt Gingrich, an initiative called Cut 50, which is looking to reduce po prison populations by 50 percent. So when we can find these little bridge points, and it, where they've we actually have been having quite a bit of success too, haven't they? Oh yeah, no. In fact, that's one of the areas where transpartisan work is really getting a lot of traction is criminal justice reform because there, the, there's strong motivations on the left and strong motivations on the right to really to really address a system that's so that we imprison more people as a percentage than any, any pretty much any other country in the world except for maybe a few, you know, really oppressive authoritarian regimes. One of the things that you bring out so beautifully in your book are all the myriad initiatives for doing good, like the, the collaboration you were just talking about, like, like Kiva, like uh, there was some educational intervention group that would go in for one day to schools that you described and make a real change in the bullying yeah, so that's called Challenge Day. That's a great group that's worked with, I think, over a million uh, million students in different schools. They have a one-day intervention that helps to shift the school culture that's more based upon cliques and bullying and misunderstanding to one that's really people really get cracked open and open their hearts and do some healing work. And it's it's been a very proven intervention that people like Oprah Winfrey have gotten on board with. So, mm -hmm. so there's in every every part of our society there are remarkable breakthrough solutions, um, and I think we need to put more of our attention on those, because when we really see a solution working, there's an opportunity to amplify it and connect the dots with other other places. Um, just as an example, in uh, the realm of banking, we, talk, we we there's a lot of complaints about the the banking sector and the extent to which finances dominate our economy and kind of become this tapeworm sucking the life force out of the economy. And I, I agree with a lot of those, but but 
there's not as much focus on, well, what are the real solutions? And so one solution that I think is fascinating is public banks. There's a whole movement around creating public banks that are that fund infrastructure development, that fund, fund small businesses, but that also are, are designed as profit-making engines. And when, the, when they make profit, they, it goes back to the people. So in, in uh, North Dakota, there's a Bank of North Dakota. Bank, interestingly enough, North Dakota is mainly a Republican state and Republican legislature, but they have this public bank that operates in parallel with par- with private banks, and it helps. It really helps to do a lot of the things that that we're wanting the financial sector to do, but the the, the private banks don't necessarily take on. And uh, so, as a result, North Dakota weathered the economic recession that we had better than any other state, and they have lower taxes. They the people get money back through the public bank because of its its when it makes a profit on loans, it it ends up getting returned back to the people. So it's a great innovation, wow. and you know people don't even hear about that. I've talked to different political leaders like Gavin Newsom in California, and he'd never heard of the Bank of North Dakota. But I said, well, why don't we have a Bank of California? And and there is a whole movement of people is working to activate public banks in different sectors and cities. And so that's a great example of something that can be very much shared common ground between left and right, and gives us opportunity to have some wins rather than just argue and stalemate each other over what where the areas where we don't necessarily agree on the highest level of policy, but we can build momentum off these smaller wins that then build and scale and replicate. One of the things that you said that really hit home to me when, for example, you said that you set out to read Sarah Palin's books because you realized that uh, you had such an antipathy towards her. In our normal daily lives, we don't have the opportunity, by and large, to connect with with people of a different faith or we or or uh, different culture or different political um, opinions. We tend to just go within our own circles that we feel comfortable in. So you're putting the onus on the individual to make that effort to get out and inform yourself and connect. That's yeah, what I doesn't, It doesn't have to be overwhelming either. It's like I, I like to go to realclearpolitics.com uh, every day, and I try to read a couple articles from the left – from the right, rather, because I tend to read more things from the left. It's more resonant with my worldview. But if if you don't read what other – what people are thinking differently, it's like you can, you can just end up with a lot of um, – untested assumptions. And you also language issues in a certain way. So another problem that develops is a lot of language has gotten very polarized into left or right. And it's sort of like, well, peace building, well, that's a left thing. And security, that's a right thing. And so you end up with this kind of different languages, language being spoken and different re, uh, realms of evidence being cited about different things as well. So just spending some time every day reading a little bit from somebody who thinks differently. I've I've ordered books from people who are more uh, I read a book, wrote a, or ordered a book called um, Liberal Fascism recently as a way to understand why the you know what what it was on the right about the way in which liberal agendas were were being advanced that felt so dissonant and so he makes the case there's mm-hmm. essentially there's a connection between liberalism and fascism and the imposition of certain values on uh, conservatives that they're not wanting. And so, you know, it's useful to kind of spend a little time thinking about the world from that perspective. And then it opens up a deeper level of sensitivity and and why people might react to different things. 
and, um, and, and potentially points to better solutions. Because when we can talk about potential solutions from a multiplicity of viewpoints, we're going to be more successful. So if we're talking to somebody on the left about $15 an hour minimum wage, we might say it's really about uplifting the poor and the, having, having people have dignity and self-respect and preventing the exploitation of the, of the companies. You're talking to somebody on the right, you might say, you know, having a higher minimum wage means fewer people, people need fewer subsidies, and we decrease the size of the federal bureaucracy, we decrease the tra tax burden, and we basically ensure that people are, who are working full-time have enough money that we don't have to subsidize them. And so that's a more of a right-leaning argument, but it's, it, um, it actually opens to a different kind of listening. So I was recently, when I was at the uh, Republican National Convention, I was on a panel with Grover Norquist, and I'm not an expert on gun issues at all, but I, I've been appalled at how they've been stalled, like any real progress has been stalled for some time. So we were dialoguing on the panel about what, you know, what is it that is, that's frozen up in the whole gun debate, and you know, and I, I kind of got like, oh, there's this whole thing around confiscation. Uh, the, the liberals are essentially running an agenda to confiscate the guns that are protected by the Second Amendment. And I could see that there was all this charge around the word confiscation. And it helped mm -hmm. me understand mm -hmm. that for somebody who really is deeply committed to owning a gun, that the idea of t having that taken away is an existential threat. It brings up really primal security issues. And so, and so anything about you know, confiscation is going to essentially just shut down any sort of debate. So, you know, I, we didn't come to a necessarily agreement on it, but I was, I was talk, uh, just interested in exploring, well, what can we focus on around responsible gun ownership? So how can we increase responsibility? So it's, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes languaging can be helpful if we take these different perspectives. Not to mention actually listening. Mm -hmm. uh, too often we just kind of shut down I'm speaking with Stephen Dynan about Sacred America, Sacred World, and you could find out more about the book at sacredamerica.net. Stephen, your discussion about engagement with the political process really hit home to me when, when you described your visit to Washington and how you found um, the staffers of the various Congress people very responsive. What do we need to do as citizens to claim the the power that we want? Well, one of the things that's really it was a wake up for me was just shifting from strictly focusing our political energy on electing people who think like us to empowering the people who are already in office to do a better job. And that's that's what really the function of what some people call citizen lobbying, that we're uh, that we're there to to build a bridge to to the offices and staff of, of our congressional leaders. And it can happen on a local level, too, and state level that we we take the time to to build some bridges. And then we can be we can be a voice for particular positions when different bills come up uh, that we feel passionately about, or sometimes sharing stories of like why something is really important. It's, it can give them a real uh, it can give them an excuse or a motive to to or rather a story that's going to help them tell the tell the larger story publicly. So sometimes if they're like, well, one of my constituents told me X, that could be very powerful in in helping them shift a debate in a positive direction. So we've we've learned a lot from the Friends Committee on National Legislation. It's a Quaker-based group, but they're open to others. And so we've brought quite a number of people that um, aren't Quakers to also participate. 
there's an annual conference where they train you on citizen lobbying and really give you best practices and then you go and, and lobby usually for peace oriented themes that's in, in November you can find it at fcnl.org and and so what i found so refreshing about it is they have a spiritual basis to it there's a there's a way in which going into silence is part of the the quaker practice and there's there's a strong unifying element that they're they're trying really trying to be respectful with everybody so it's they're working with Republic, republicans and democrats and they're advocating for a whole range of different policy shifts and and legislation but they they do so in a really respectful way and it does it does move the needle we had a definitely as a group had a big impact on the adoption of the Iran deal that was prevents Iran from getting nuclear weapons and I really feel like that was a building block towards creating more peace and stability in in the Middle East and this group of 450 people or so had a big impact on that and so one of the things you learn is it's not just about influencing the political leader. It's often about making a connection with staffers because the staff people are the ones who have to drill down and, and really get up to speed in different areas. The, you know, the, the candidates or the, um, the representatives themselves are often have to spend a lot of time in committees and fundraising and jetting around and speaking. And so they don't have a lot of time to get really deeply up on the issues. So if you want to help to influence legislation in a positive direction, then it's getting to know the staffers can actually be more valuable. So that's that's kind of one of the those paradigm shifts of like thinking of, oh, my participation in democracy is all about uh, electing people that I, that I like uh, or that think like me to, you know what, whoever's in office, even if we're a Democrat and we have a Republican um, representative or senator to, to sort of take the time to get connected in a respectful way, work with a group like FCNL to learn more how to do that. And that actually helps the, the democracy work better because then we're sort of a voice of the people that's an antidote to some of the distorting influences of p paid professional lobbyists as well. How do we get money out of politics? Do you think that's a hope in our lifetime? I think it's I think it's inevitable, frankly, because it you know what happens with the American people is that we we can be a little bit apathetic until something gets dramatic, and then we, then we'll then we'll move into action and really take take it on. And uh, there was a guy named uh, Cenk Uger who's from the Young Turks, and he makes makes a great point that pretty much every generation has had a constitutional amendment and. Uh, and it's really, a, you know, so there's nothing unusual about creating a, a constitutional amendment. We just need to build enough momentum for it. There's probably 90% of, of or more of the U.S. population already wants to get get some of the big money out of politics. It doesn't mean you have to get all of it out. I mean, you can still have people making $100 contributions to candidates. But just the level of distortion from, from big money right now is clearly compromising our democracy. So I, I believe that we will be able to get it. It takes some patience and long-term work. It may may require going state by state as, um, as Wolfpack, the organization that Chenk Ugar started is is working on. Um, it may be able to happen if they're in the next Congress if if things swing more to the, the Democrats side because they've really made a commitment to end uh, to, for a constitutional amendment to end Citizens United to um, to be legislated. So that it's possible it might happen there. Uh, but I think that the deeper principle is to first of all always look back historically. We've overcome slavery. That was a monster monster challenge that 
many people worked for decades on and thought would never be able to overcome. And getting women the right to vote was also, you know, multiple generations and just a, a certain tenacity there. So will we be able to eventually get the money out of politics and have a have a constitutional um, amendment to do so? I believe we will. And it's just based on our history. It's like we do wake up, we do get engaged we, when when the stakes are high enough and it's serious enough. Well, I'm glad you sound so encouraged. <laughs> um, if we're talking about serious problems, how about climate change? Why do you think that it was so rejected out of hand by the conservatives? Was it simply the influence of the oil companies or was there something deeper? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a lot of complexity in, in that. I think that there's there's some worldview clashes that, that are going on in terms of sort of having a, a more science-based reality. And science has kind of gotten, unfortunately, become more of like the left-wing approach to things. And so I really believe that a more mature Republican Party has to take just as seriously the the importance of science. And I think part of what's going to happen this year, ideally, is is that there is going to be a reboot for the Republican Party after the Trump phenomenon. I think there's a real sincere uh, soul-searching that's going to be going on about, like, what is the future of the Republican Party after all of all of what's transpired this year? And, um, and I think that out of that could emerge a more enlightened right. And so in the book, I go into what does a more enlightened right look like? What does a more enlightened left look like? I'm not saying that we're going to erase the political differences, but they get to be more mature. They get to be more sophisticated. They get to be more whole and um, transpartisan in different ways. And so I think that embracing science is something that's going to have to happen on the on the right and not to see that as, as uh, a political football that to play with, but it's more like really important information for good decision making. So, and I think, that, I, and so part, part of that is because, because there's, you know, the, the academia has been sort of left leaning then the Republicans, because there's this warfare psychology, then are, they're saying, okay, well, that's just their team in a way, rather than saying, this is actually something that's important for all of us. Mm. There's a book called I'm Right and You're an Idiot by James Hogan, who was talking about the different ways that um, the conservatives versus the progressives tend to process information. So he's suggesting that the progressives process it in a very logical, um, evidence-based argument, whereas the conservatives are more emotional trigger-based. And I think there's a lot to that, and it kind of backs up what you were saying about the issues regarding gun control, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, possibly even climate change. Yeah. Well, and so part of it is also to get more sophisticated about that. So if we're talking about um, if we're talking about gun control, like instead of talking about gun control, we talk about gun responsibility, you know, and, the, and that that mm-hmm. sort of feels right. more grounded. And so language like, you know, control immediately brings up certain uh, a paradigm of constriction or imposition or so there's like that can trigger an emotional response. If we're talking about the the the, the planet. So, you know, global warming. um Oftentimes, like a, a, there's been more progress, I think, on the on the right using framing like creation care, for instance. 
creation care is ultimately about ensuring that we're taking care of the creation that God has given us, and so that that is and that, that that's part of our of our duty as as um, as you know people who are serving serving the the higher will. So that kind of mm-hmm. a framing can get more traction than the essentially. Um, Le- on the left, there tends to be a way that we don't we, we don't necessarily bring in the sacred com- component to things in as in as clear a way. So I think that really having a sacred relationship with the planet is is important, and and people have different frameworks for how they do that. There's on the left, there tends to be a little more of a kind of a religious, a spiritual but not religious um, tends to be more common, and the, so that to relate to the planet as sort of just as a as a ascension entity whereas on the on the right it's a little more about dominion in 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 a sense that you were given dominion over the planet and the animals and and the people but to do so in a way that's righteous and and responsible and that ultimately is expressing care for creation like that has a different kind of quality to it and uh and so you know, and I think also on the left, there's a tendency sometimes to to drop the human side of the equation, just focus on animals that are endangered or or potentially going instinct, and and you know not to focus on well, what about the the loggers who who do need to have a a job or a livelihood, and so to just polarize against that. So to try to really build in thinking about everybody and taking and caring for everybody, because the more we can genuinely care for everybody, even those on the other side of a d- divide, it's gonna it's going to not trigger as many emotions as well. So if, if the right tends to make more decisions from the emotional standpoint, we want to engage them in a way that's more respectful and honoring and um, ultimately healing uh, because otherwise you're going to get more dug in. Sure. And it comes back to compassion and, and respect. Stephen, we're talking about the use of language and you were talking about framing one's political discourse or, or really any kind of outreach in a way that will that the other side can relate to, which is essentially what politicians do all the time, except they call it spin. And it's well, I, the I think there's a difference thing. between spin. Spin can be dishonest. I think there's a way of, of, in a way, it's more like translating into different language systems. Is, is I would say it's more accurate. I I totally agree. But the purpose in both cases is to get into the head of the person you're speaking to, mm-hmm. speaking with, instead of just speaking to. And that's the real secret sauce here. Is bridging that divide between me and thee and trying to to understand what why you are reacting the way you are reacting what is important to you what are your values and this is not just on an individual or a, a community level but it's also on an international level and you go into the idea of a global government of some kind. I know it's 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 a nasty word to certain people, you know, the new world order. But you explain that. I think I'd like you to go into that a bit because that really is the the next big challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I felt it was important in this book to also look at some of the long-range developments to sort of also look at them with a more objective eye. And so one of the things that 
tends to be a, a big bugaboo um, in a lot of different quarters is any sort of like um, globalization and the forces of globalization. So I, I really make the case that we are moving into we we are in a global era. We have global media, we have global internet, we have global trade, we have global um, transnational corporations. We have uh, the, everything is becoming globalized in different ways. And so what that does is it means that we have a, a lot of emergent challenges that it requires global global thinking to address. And so we've had some of that with the with the Paris Accords on climate, for instance. But we don't have a structure right now beyond the United Nations of actually having elected representation to, to be kind of global problem solvers. So I talk about it in the form of long-term thinking about what does it look like to have a, a World Congress that is protected from lobbying influence, that has limited uh, decision-making, maybe 5% of the decision-making of the larger world. It's only from democratically elected states, so it's so it's very um so the whole thing is intrinsically democratic and there's and there's built-in feedback loops so that people have have a more direct pipeline to provide feedback on via smartphones uh what's actually happening in that global congress so or world congress and so the the idea there is to is to first of all recognize that it's a natural outgrowth when you've got globalized everything else if you don't have some form of limited effective democratic global governance Basically, you're 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 abdicating some of those roles. So, like you know, the transnational corporations can play different countries off each other, and they can drive us towards towards more environmental degradation right now because each government can't really control what they're up to. They can just locate wherever mm -hmm. they want, and they're playing different ones off each other. Same thing with finance. As finance comes in and out of countries and can wreck different economies, um, and it's largely outside of any sort of state control right now. So we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of globalization of certain sectors of society, but unless we also have a parallel growth in um, ability to create some checks and balances on that, they can become really damaging. So, and it's also, I just, I think that if we, if we, if we step out of our fear place around it, it's a natural outgrowth that we, like with the United States of America, it's like we started off as 13 colonies. The, the Articles of Confederation were very fearful of any centralization of power. So the federal government basically didn't exist, didn't have the ability to create, um, you know, much of anything. And so it, it was kind of dysfunctional. So we actually became a healthier, stronger nation by uniting the states and keeping some of their rights and powers into a larger uh, confederation that became the United States of uh, of America, and then as we've expanded from 13 states to 50 states, it keeps strengthening us economically, culturally, in different ways. And that the more that we can move towards that slowly but surely, um, moving towards more regional accords, more there's a European Union, increasing African Union, there's a Southeast Asian Union. There's these kind of regional groups that are getting more and more aligned more and more peaceful, more and more collaborative, less and less boundaries, that we're going to eventually do that on a global scale. And to not be afraid of that, but to think about it in a thoughtful way and design design it so that it doesn't, doesn't create the sort of fear scenarios that people are worried about. Well, what we have now is almost a de facto global government uh, amongst the elite mega corporations and uh, exactly. bank, the the financial system. So this would be the only way that we could counterbalance that. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think it's just, you know, and so 
But what I'm trying to do in the book is not to go into a lot of details on that. In fact, I just mm-hmm. do one chapter on it out of 34 or so chapters. And But I think it's important for us to have, make it a, an acceptable part of the discourse and not just be like, oh, it's like all that one world government fearsome, fearful thing. It's more like, no, this is actually – it's sensible as a long-term strategy to have this as part of – part of what, how we're thinking we create a really healthy, peaceful, sustainable world. But that's really the theme of the book, uh, as above, so below, if you will, uh, as on the global level, so it is on the local level. And if we don't get engaged as citizens, and if we don't inform ourselves and understand what's going on and listen to each other, then we just throw up our hands and allow the status quo to go in whatever chaotic direction it wants. Right. So I think we're in a stage where we've got to activate a vision for a really, truly healthy America, one that's more enlightened, that's in in service to the greater good, that's truly global. And also thinking, you know, it's not just global governance, but really thinking more globally about how do we solve our challenges. So instead of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have to to create peace in the world, it's not going to happen just through the military. We have to also really be proactive about helping to diffuse conflicts, to help to to build up economies that are that are broken to help to uh heal historical wounds and that actually creates a different kind of security same thing with global warming it's like with with environmental threats rising it's like that's a, it's a different kind of security if we make sure that the planet can actually have enough resources to to survive and that other countries do that'll help us actually become more secure so in order to really thrive now in this new era the global era we have to think globally and become a um, you know, a globally oriented America that is also that is also a, an example of of health and prosperity and peace and and uh, sustainability. That all of these things we have to bake them in and demonstrate success while we're also being of of deep service to other countries and peoples as well. I loved your description of the microfinance uh, portion of how you. Um, saw the fallout of a, a small loan to buy a sewing machine for some woman who can then support her family and her son was, would be less inclined to become a terrorist because he sees that um, his mother is actually benefiting from Western generosity. I mean, yeah. it's all so connected. I think it's really important we do that because every time there's a you know there's a, a bomb dropped or even you know the, the sort of drones going in and taking out different terrorist leaders it's like that doesn't just have physical damage there's psychological damage and people can get really there's a, a groundswell of negativity so in the same in the other side we need to balance things like that with we're going to be generous with loans and microfinance to help these economies get on their feet and and so. Uh, so I, I think that microfinance is something that can be a great unifying point for left and right. It's actually a better investment of a lot of our uh, dollars that are supposed to create security. If we were to create more and more microfinance funds for around the world to develop for developing entrepreneurs, and most of them pay them back. Kiva.org has a 98 or 99% repayment rate, so you don't even lose the money, but it does help to stimulate a whole another level of self-sufficiency and ultimately gratitude. 
Um, some friends of mine also involved with uh, creating uh, these schools in Kenya. And when you really create a, a school that's an engine for, for, for growth and education of a whole village, then it, then it feeds back on itself. People have, they become more self-sufficient. There's more gratitude. And these stories of gratitude and development are actually really central to, to build trust and relationship and natural rapport. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. ultimately what's going to create uh, the kind of harmonious global global world that we know is possible. You have to, we've got to be doing as much of that or more of that than we are um, military type interventions. Well, this book is just so uplifting and positive in its tone. One of my favorite parts of it are the appendices where you have lists of organizations that are doing fantastic things in the world that you never hear about in the day-to-day. -day. And yeah. um, I, I mean, it, it's just so uplifting to know that there are people out there with that vision you also throw out a lot of little ideas that I just hope will, will fall upon fertile ground and take root and blossom. I hope so. I mean, I've gotten a copy of the book to uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and to um, Michael Steele on the Republican side, various mayors. They signed one to go to Justin Trudeau. Uh -huh. I'm interested in planting these seeds wherever they, wherever possible, and you never know when a good idea is going to filter in and, and find fertile soil, as you said. So some of, that, some of our advocacy as uh, citizens can be also just propagating inspiring stories and ideas and possibilities rather than just the kind of a gridlocked policies, but finding these things that are like, oh, Bank of North Dakota, or here's a way to do Kiva.org, or here's, here's how we can demonstrate peace building in a society, and here's what's happening with Challenge Day in schools. Right. All these things, are they're, they're like all very... I don't believe we need to create a lot of new things. We're just, we just need to amplify all the great new innovations we already have. Absolutely. Well, Stephen Dynan, author of Sacred America, Sacred World, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And be sure to go to his website, sacredamerica.net, and check out the Shift Network while you're at it. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day. Goodbye. <laughs>